Section 2. The French Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The French Revolution by Hilaire Belloc. Section 2. Chapter 1. The Political Theory of the Revolution. The political theory upon which the revolution proceeded has, especially in this country, suffered ridicule as local, as ephemeral, and as fallacious. It is universal, it is eternal, and it is true. It may be briefly stated thus, that a political community pretending to sovereignty, that is, pretending to a moral right of defending its existence against all other communities, derives the civil and temporal authority of its laws not from its actual rulers, nor even from its magistracy, but from itself. But the community cannot express authority unless it possesses corporate initiative, that is, unless the mass of its component units are able to combine for the purpose of a common expression, are conscious of a common will, and have something in common which makes the whole sovereign indeed. It may be that this power of corporate initiative and of corresponding corporate expression is forbidden to men. In that case, no such thing as a sovereign community can be said to exist. In that case, patriotism, public opinion, the genius of a people, are terms without meaning. But the human race in all times and in all places has agreed that such terms have meaning, and the conception that a community can so live order and be itself is a human conception as consonant to the nature of man as is his sense of right and wrong it is much more intimately a part of that nature than are the common accidents determining human life such as nourishment generation or repose nay more intimate a part of it than anything which attaches to the body this theory of political morals, though subject to a limitless degradation in practice, underlies the argument of every man who pretends to regard the conduct of the state as a business affecting the conscience of citizens. Upon it relies every protest against tyranny and every denunciation of foreign aggression. He that is most enamored of some set machinery for the government of men and who regards the sacramental function of an hereditary monarch, as in Russia, the organic character of a native oligarchy, as in England, the mechanical arrangement of election by majorities, or, even in a crisis, the intense conviction and therefore the intense activity and conclusive power of great crowds as salutary to the state, will invariably, if any one of these engines fail him in the achievement of what he desires for his country, fall back upon the doctrine of an ultimately sovereign community. He will complain that though an election has defeated his ideal, yet true national tradition and true national sentiment were upon his side. If he defends the action of a native oligarchy against the leaders of the populace, he does so by an explanation, more or less explicit, that the oligarchy is more truly national, that it is more truly communal, than the engineered expression of opinion of which the demagogue, as he will call them, have been mouthpieces. Even in blaming men for criticizing or restraining an hereditary monarch, 
the adherent of that monarch will blame them upon the ground that their action is anti-national, that it is anti-communal, and in a word, no man pretending to sanity can challenge, in matters temporal and civil, the ultimate authority of whatever is felt to be, though with what difficulty it is not defined, the general civic sense which builds up in a state. Those words civil and temporal must lead the reader to the next consideration, which is that the last authority of all does not reside even in the community. It must be admitted by all those who have considered their own nature and that of their fellow beings that the ultimate authority in any act is God. Or if the name of God sound unusual to an English publication today, then what now takes the place of it for many, an imperfect phrase, the moral sense. Thus, if there be cast together in some abandoned place a community of a few families so depraved or so necessitous that, against the teachings of their own consciences, as well as knowing that they are doing, is what we call wrong, yet they will unanimously agree to do it, then that agreement of theirs, though certainly no temporal or civil authority can be quoted against it, is yet unjustifiable. Another authority lies behind. Still more evidently would this be true if, of, say, twelve, seven decided, knowing the thing to be wrong, that the wrong thing should be done. Five stood out for the right, and yet the majority possessed by the seven should be determined a sufficient authority for the wrongful command. But it is to be noted that this axiom only applies where the authority of the moral law, God, as the author of this book, with due deference to his readers, would prefer to say, is recognized and yet flouted. If those twelve families do sincerely believe such and such a general action to be right, then not only is their authority, when they carry it into practice, a civil and temporal authority, it is an authority absolute in all respects. And further, if upon a division of opinion among them, not perhaps a bare majority, nay, perhaps not a majority at all, but at any rate a determinate current of opinion, determinate in intensity and in weight, that is, as well as in numbers, declares an action to be right, then that determinate weight of opinion gives to its resolve a political authority, not only civil and temporal, but absolute. Beyond it and above it there is no appeal. In other words, men may justly condemn and justly have in a thousand circumstances condemned the theory that a mere decision on the major part of the community was necessarily right in morals. It is for that matter self-evident that if one community decides in one fashion, another also sovereign in the opposite fashion, both cannot be right. Reasoning men have also protested, and justly, against the conception that what a majority in numbers or even what is more compelling still, a unanimity of decision in a community, may order, may not only be wrong, but may be something which that community has no authority to order, since, though it possesses a civil and temporal authority, it acts against that ultimate authority, which is its own consciousness of right. Men may and do justly protest against the doctrine that a community is incapable of doing deliberate evil. It is as capable of such an action as is an individual. But men nowhere do or can deny 
that the community acting as it thinks right is ultimately sovereign there is no alternative to so plain a truth let us take it then as indubitable that where civil government is concerned the community is supreme if only from the argument that no organ within the community can prove its right to withstand the corporate will when once that corporate will shall find expression all arguments which are advanced against this prime axiom of political ethics are when they are analyzed found to repose upon a confusion of thought thus a man will say this doctrine would lead my country to abandon her suzerainty over that other nation but were i to consent to this i should be weakening my country to which i owe allegiance the doctrine compels him to no such muddlement the community of which he is a member is free to make its dispositions for safety and is bound to preserve its own life it is for the oppressed to protest and to rebel similarly men think that this doctrine in some way jars with the actual lethargy and actual imbecility of men in their corporate action it does nothing of the kind this lethargy that imbecility and all the other things that limit the application of the doctrine in no way touch its right reason any more than the fact that the speech of all men is imperfect contradicts the principle that man has a moral right to self-expression that a dumb man cannot speak at all but must write is so far from a contradiction a proof of the truth that speech is the prime expression of a man and in the same way a community utterly without the power of expressing its corporate will is no contradiction but a proof of the general rule that such expression and the imposing of such decisions are normal to mankind the very oddity of the contrast between the abnormal and the normal aids us in our decision and when we see a people conquered and not persuaded yet making no attempt at rebellion or a people free from foreign oppression yet bewildered at the prospect of self-government the oddity of the phenomena proves our rule but though all this be true there stands against the statement of our political axiom not a contradiction added but a criticism and all men with some knowledge of their fellows and of themselves at once perceive first that the psychology of corporate action differs essentially from the psychology of individual action and secondly that in proportion to the number the discussions the lack of intimacy and in general the friction of the many corporate action by a community corporate self-realization and the imposition of a corporate will varies from the difficult to the impossible on this no words need be wasted all men who reason and who observe are agreed that in proportion to distance numbers and complexity the difficulty of self-expression within a community increases we may get in a lively people explosions of popular will violent acute and certainly real but rare we may attempt with a people more lethargic to obtain some reflection of popular will through the medium of a permanent machinery of deputation which less than any other perhaps permits a great community to express itself truly we may rely upon the national sympathies of an aristocracy or of a king 
but in any case we know that the large communities can only indirectly and imperfectly express themselves where the permanent government of the whole interest is concerned our attachment which may be passionate to the rights of the common will we must satisfy either by demanding a loose federation of small self-governing states or submitting the central government of a large one to occasional insurrection and to violent corporate expression of opinion which shall readjust the relations between the governor and the governed all this is true but such a criticism of the theory in political morals which lay behind the revolution the theory that the community is sovereign is no contradiction it only tells us that pure right cannot act untrammeled in human affairs and that it acts in some conditions more laboriously than in others it gives not a jot of authority to any alternative thesis footnote one we need not waste any time upon those who talk about such and such a form of government being good because it works the use of such language connotes that the user of it is fatigued by the effort of thought for what is working for example successful action in any sphere the attainment of certain ends in that sphere what are those ends in a state if material well-being then there is an end to talk of patriotism the nation public opinion and the rest of it which as we all very well know men have always regarded and always will regard as the supreme matters of public interest if the end is not material well-being but a sense of political freedom and of the power of the citizen to react upon the state then to say that an institution works though apparently not democratic is simply to say that under such and such conditions that institution achieves the ends of democracy most nearly in other words to contrast the good working of an institution superficially undemocratic with democratic theory is meaningless the institution works in proportion as it satisfies that political sense which perfect democracy would were it attainable completely satisfy the end of section two